Let the whole earth stand in awe of him. Amen. How many of you had a treasure box when you were little? How many of you had a treasure box when you were little? Do you know what I mean? They came in different ways for different folks. Some people it was a shoe box. Other people uh, it was like a little tin box. For me it was an old index card box. I can still picture it. It was plastic and, you know, it was had my precious things in it, things like railroad spikes and the geode that I found on Kelly's Island. There's a book which is dear to me called The The Littlest Angel. And um, it's a book that came out in the 40s, but it's it's been reissued several times. It's about a four-year-old who goes to heaven and just doesn't belong. And of course, bad theology aside, right? We don't die as humans and become angels, so let's leave that aside. Essentially, the four-year-old at the end of the book finally brings out his treasure box and gives it to the Christ child as his gift. And it's the most wonderful gift. God is so pleased with it that he takes it and it becomes the star of Bethlehem. If you haven't read it, I advise you to do so. It's, it's a great book. In this season of the year, the scriptures appointed turn us towards the theme of offerings, oblations, and tithes. It's not coincidental that at this time of harvest, the modern lectionary developed in the northern hemisphere comes to those themes, right? The fields are ripe. Things are coming into the storehouses, the The apples are being picked and pressed or stored for the winter time. Sometimes we forget just how distant from the land we've become as moderns. It wasn't that long ago when you couldn't get strawberries or oranges in the winter time at the supermarket because they were out of season. You still can't get good ones, I would contend, at least of the strawberries. But beyond such preference, it also wasn't that long ago, maybe a few generations where if you didn't prepare well, your family could suffer, perhaps even starve, for not paying attention to the harvest. We're much shaken today when something disrupts our artificial stability and our perceived independence, because despite what we think, despite all of our technology, we're still fragile creatures, aren't we? And we're reminded by illness of that, amongst other things. The ancients, however, understood this well, and we see the temples in the ruins archaeologists show us and that we see in the museums just how important the harvest was to them. There's temples to the gods of fertility all over the place in every culture, to to fertility and the harvest, and we see references in the Old Testament Names such as Baal and Dagon are always luring the Hebrews away from the one true God. And what's so tempting? What's so tempting that they would abandon the one true God for these false gods? A harvest, plenty, 
wealth, and comfort, of course. The same things that lure us away from the one true God, if we're honest. But ultimately, the illusion of self-sufficiency and power stands behind those things. For as much as worshiping a God of of fertility might have cost them, and it often would cost them quite a lot, the firstborn of the womb, for example, in human sacrifice, there was a transaction that went on. You see, the idea was you pay the price and God spares your life and then you can live as you see fit. Kind of. The same demon-inspired system was universal around the ancient world. The fertility or harvest gods had different names, it's true. Dagon was the Syrian one, Baal, the Canaanite, as we read this week in the lectionary. Demeter was the Greek version, and Ceres, the Roman one. But the one exception to this pantheon of gods, fertility and harvest, was the Hebrew god. You see, the Hebrews were odd in that they had only one god. And oddly enough, that god didn't accept babies, or any kind of bribe for that matter, as a sort of sacrifice so you could go on and live your life the way you wanted to. By contrast, the Lord God Almighty, the Hebrew God, promised to provide for his people and promised to prosper them. But asked not for a trade, not for a transaction, but for a tithe, an offering of thanksgiving and a sacrifice of first fruits. They were not to sacrifice to other gods either, for they were not like the gods of the nations. Instead, their sacrifice was to the one true God and was a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And that's made clear multiple places in the Bible, but Psalm 50 sums it up really well. Addressing his people, the one true God says to them, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You see, there's a great distinction between the gods of the nations, as our psalm today calls them, and the one true God, not just the God of the Hebrews, but the God of the universe. Look with me again at the psalm. Today we sang Psalm 96. You can find it either in your your, um, order of service or scripture insert. Of course, it's in your prayer book and Bible too. But look particularly at verse 10. Tell it out among the nations. The Lord is king. It is he who has made the world so firm that it cannot be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. The thing about this psalm and everything that precedes this line is that it's not just a fancy way to praise God. I think sometimes we as moderns see the psalms and even our hymnody as fancy ways of praising God with this vivid imagery. But for the Hebrews, and indeed it's for us, at least should be, these things mean so much more. Look at verse 11 again in Psalm 96. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea make a noise and all that is therein. 
But you see, the heavens for the ancients weren't just the sky. It's not just a pretty sunset or the stars at night, but much more. The heavens are the stars, the planets, the angelic and cosmic forces that rule over all the world. And so what the psalm is bidding God's people do is to praise God for all of those things. Let the earth be glad. The earth, seen as the mother, as the ancients, as the fertile ground in which the seed is planted to bring forth abundance so that we can live. Because if she doesn't, we die. The seas. Let the seas make a noise. Now the seas are the domains of other gods for the ancients. Acne, or Enki, Tiamat, Poseidon, and the like. And what this is saying is, look, your God, Hebrews, and your God, Christians, is not like the other gods. He is the one true God standing above them. They all must worship and bow down and praise him for his rule. What Psalm 96 is asserting, if we have eyes to see it, is that there's no need to pray and sacrifice to the gods of the nations who are mere idols or to live in fear of them. And what you and I sang coming into worship today is an adaptation of that same theme. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. All things created adore Him, and we bid all creatures to adore Him as His own. Secondly, the Lord God is Almighty and different from the other gods in how he interacts with mankind. So he's different in who he is. He's the Lord God Almighty. But secondly, he's different in how he interacts with mankind. And that's an insight that I'm grateful uh, for studying under Father Jennings this summer. And his scholarship really gets into this. But relationships between persons can also be done at least in two different ways. We can have relationships with each other transactionally or by gift. Now, you probably haven't like, categorized this in your head, but you know it when I say it, right? Transactional interactions with other human beings, with other persons, let's expand it, are things where we give somebody something of a certain worth and they give us something back of reasonably equitable worth, right? If I go down the street to the donut pantry and I give him, I don't know what it is, but let's say $10.95, I get out my credit card or my cash, I get a dozen donuts in exchange. That's a transactional interaction, a transactional exchange. But that's completely different than the gift economy, completely different from our interactions that are done with gifts. If I come home today and give Leah, my wife, and Bridget, my daughter, flowers, I do so as an expression, a gift of my love and my thanksgiving. One of our parishioners today is going to, have his, going to give his bride a ring made with precious metal this afternoon. The point of the donut transaction is a trade. It's relatively equal. 
but wouldn't it be strange if I went home to my wife and daughter and I gave them flowers and they tried to pay me for it with cash or in some other way? Wouldn't that be weird? And wouldn't it be demeaning and crass if the beautiful bride this afternoon takes that wedding ring, goes from the church to the local jewelry shop, and assesses its worth as a precious metal and sees that as the only thing her husband's giving to her. We would say, no, that, that's not what this is all about. You've missed the point. And so, friends, the gods of the nations and all false gods run on a transactional economy. A transactional economy. Sacrifices and offerings to them are essentially, as I said earlier, a bribe or making a deal or buying them off. The pagan gods demanded worship, adherence, and sacrifice. In return, those pagan gods gave a productive harvest, another year of eating, maybe, because, let's face it, read some mythology, the gods are fickle. Baal and Poseidon have no customer service department, no complaint line, if you don't get what you want. But the Lord God Almighty, our God, runs on something completely different, what's called a gift economy. You see, life was his to give in the first place. Creation was a gift of love in the first place. Those things that are supposed to praise him, that we sing out in Psalm 96 and in our hymn, Praise to the Lord, are gifts from God for us, for our pleasure. Not to be bowed down to. Romans 1 talks a, little, a lot about this. The sun and the moon, the birds of the air, all of these things are good gifts, James says, given to us in love. And all this comes to bear on the Old Testament passage today and the Gospel passage, if you understand what's going on, for two reasons. Number one, the diabolical forces do exist behind the pagan gods, then and now. And we ought not to give them anything that is their due, because nothing is their due. They're supposed to praise the Lord God Almighty. And number two, there's nothing like the Lord God Almighty in that he asks for a tithe of ourselves as a thank you, as an offering and sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. And since the gods of the past had demons behind them, it's logical to think that those gods still seek adoration today and that we human beings are still susceptible to them today. Oh, it's true, they're more covert. They don't build temples anymore, although we're starting to see more of that, actually, around even the United States as they gain more influence. But they still demand blood, and they still promise freedom. They still demand sacrifices of sorts, of time, of talent, of money, in order to supposedly provide with us happiness, prosperity. But since the one true God is the reality and has made us his children, again as a gift, he delights to give us prosperity and abundant life. Did you notice the words of the opening collect today? Set us free from the bondage of sin that we might have 
the abundant life. It's that God who gives to us, that deserves our full adoration, our sacrifices of thanksgiving. Scripture tells us that. In the Old Testament, God's people repeatedly went after the demonic. Why? Again, because in that trade transaction, you can live your life the way you want to live it. Just put the nickel in, and you get what you want. Bing! Question 272 asks us in our catechism, how are you tempted to worship other gods? And this is the answer. Listen to it. I'm tempted to trust in myself, my pleasures, my possessions, my relationships, and my success, wrongly believing that they will bring me happiness, security, and meaning. I think we all know this, but knowing and practicing are two different things. And in our current culture, if it, tr- if it teaches us anything, it teaches us to trust in yourself, that you're your own happiness, that you make your own identity. Who stands behind that lie? The demonic, the devil, and all his forces. For it's behind inordinate pleasure, possession, and relationship we get twisted up and put into bondage, trapped by sin. So as we enter this time of stewardship, how many of us struggle to give offerings back to God? And I'm not asking about your money, although that's important. I'm asking about your daily worship, your life, your heart, your attitudes. I'm asking myself that too, by the way. How many of us struggle to give offerings of thanksgiving back to God. Because when it comes down to it, how many of us would pledge or give less rather than cancel a trip or a subscription to a software or Netflix? How many of us would purchase, put off a purchase a little longer because we'd rather give to God and His work? How many of us would put offerings to God as the number one thing on our budget? Actually, not just theoretically. I will give God this amount, come hell or high water. You see, most of us will assent to the importance of the spiritual theoretically, but when it comes to practice, we worship other gods. How many of us can say the same about our time? How many of us have the wrong heart in giving our sacrifices unto God? We started the sermon by saying, worship God in in holiness, right? That's a state of being. That's a way of being as yourself in the Lord. But how many of us pat ourselves on the back when we get our families to church on Sunday? Oh, good job. I mean, good job. It is difficult when you have children. I recognize that, as you guys saw earlier. <laughs> I mean, children are rambunctious, right? And it's hard to get out of bed in the, mon- in the morning, whether you have children or not, particularly on those rain, coldy day- cold days. But that's what we owe the Lord. You're not doing Him a favor by coming to worship, although sometimes we think that way, don't we? We're not doing Him a favor when we teach in Sunday school or serve at the altar. 
These are immense privileges, sacrifices of thanksgiving, offerings of love and praise. So you see, dear friends, there's many ways to rob God, as Malachi 3.8 said. Read the rest of the book of Malachi. It's a short book. But ultimately, it's about God's people not offering offerings with a pure heart. The priests pollute the altar. Husbands are unfaithful to their wives. People lie and deceive and take advantage of the vulnerable. People call evil good. Look at me really quickly, just at chapter 3. What do we see there? What do we see there? What did Eris read for us? Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You see, friends, that's the promise that God gives to us. He's not exacting sacrifice so that we can be happy. That's the promise to his people. But the very next line, which is in the Bible, of course, but not in our reading today, is fascinating. So again, this is Malachi chapter 3, but verse 13 through 15, where we read, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking it as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. You see, what's going on here is God's people are doubting God's goodness and hardening their hearts. The people of God, however, should not have hard hearts and should not treat God like the pagan gods, transactionally. The church has for centuries seen 10% and a giving of 10% of one's income as the minimum standard for a church member to give. Bishop Irenaeus says this, the Jews were constrained to a regular payment of tithes. Christians have liberty who have liberty, assign all their possessions to the Lord, bestowing freely, not the lesser portion of their property, since they have hope of greater things. Generosity and cheer is the mark of a sacrifice of thanksgiving. To tithe of our income is important, yes, but more importantly is to tithe of our income righteously and with a good heart to give regularly of our time, our talent, and our treasure as that offering, that gift back to God, recognizing that it was that gift of God that gave you the ability to give the gift back to God to begin with. It's just a big gift exchange that we're about today. The Eucharist itself is a gift exchange. Why do we take the offering before we have Holy Communion? It's our offering unto the Lord. But who gave us the money? Who gave us the bread? Who gave us the wine? The Lord. And we're just giving a little bit back to him. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thy own have we given thee, we say, as we raise the plates. That's quoting King David, who in First Chronicles chapter 29 does that to institute temple worship. So, dear friends, 
as we enter into the season of harvest and stewardship, before you make calculations, before you make your budget, before you look at all of the things that you don't have, look at the things that you have as gifts from the Lord and make sure that you're not robbing God either in what you're giving or in how you're giving it. Don't treat God as the gods of the nations, but as your loving Father who delights to give you the things that you need and gives you abundant life. God cares for you more than Caesar. God cares for you more than your parents or your children. God cares for you more than you care for yourself. It's hard to believe. Realize that. Come to the altar in that heart and bring the whole tithe of yourself into the storehouse for your Father knows what you need and will delight to give it to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.